From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, what does peace mean to you? We explore that question with award-winning photographer and author John Knowlton, who has spent the last several years traveling over 40,000 miles asking people that very question. The result has been a series of books and a traveling exhibit called A Piece of My Mind, where he explores how we think about peace in our fractured and often polarized media landscape. Stay tuned. Hey friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakas. It's called The Holy, Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it, and I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know, I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay, here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with John Noltner. He's an award-winning photographer and author, and over the past several years, he's driven over 40,000 miles all around the United States asking people one simple question, what does peace mean to you? And he's taken their answers and the photography that he's done accompanying those answers and turned it into a series of books, all with a common title, A Piece of My Mind, Peace spelled P-E-A-C-E. John Noltner, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's good to be with you today. Well, I'd, I'd like to start out and just ask uh, sort of a background question. You're a photographer. How long have you been a photographer and what got you into this medium as an expressive form? Yeah, sure. I, um, I've been a photographer as long as I can remember. I think I, I saved my shoveling and lawn mowing money when I was nine years old to buy my first SLR camera, and, um, but never really considered that I could make my living doing that and make it my vocation. Uh, it was, I think, my, my junior year in college when I took my first photography class, and I wound up being a, uh, a journalism major. I got my degree in print journalism um, and not necessarily a degree in photography. My degree is in writing, uh, but, I, but I, I always return to that love of photography and have always made my living doing it. So I worked for a couple of years at a daily newspaper just out of college as a staff photographer. Then I worked at a commercial studio for a little while and about 22 years ago went out on my own as a freelance photographer. 
And what what is it particularly about photography that's attractive to you? I've I've dabbled in various artistic media over the years, and I've always I've always had a, a love of photography. But but it, it seems to me like it's it's both the most honest and at the same time the most um, manufactured of expressive forms. Is that a fair assessment? I think it is. You know the the, the saying a picture is worth a thousand words um, certainly stands true, but those words um, aren't always rooted in reality. You know, we can show what we want to show with photography. We can tell the story we want to tell. But one of the things I've always loved about it is is the combination of aesthetic and technical. Um, I think it balances out my brain. I like the ability to do storytelling, but I like to do it, um, you know, with the beauty and aesthetics that photography can bring uh, to the table. Now, if I think back to my first job interview at a newspaper, um, my dad was quizzing me. He was asking me how I was going to respond to the question of why do you want this job? And I said, um, because photography allows me to be curious about almost anything in the world. And he said, you can't say that in the interview. <laughs> and in fact, I did say it in the interview, and it, uh, I think, was part of what got me the job. It really is my excuse to go explore the world. And you, you say that photography is a type of storytelling. I think a lot of times people may have the misperception that a, that a photograph simply uh, exhibits the world as it was or as it is. Do, do you mean to say that there's something in a photograph that is artificial? Um, well, um, maybe not artificial, but, um, but uh, can be bent one way or another. You know, we can add our perspective by where we've positioned the camera, what we include in the frame, how we, how we light it. Uh, and things like that. So it's a you know it's a set of tools that you can use to craft a story. Well, and and so you've been photographing all of your life, and something got you involved in traveling the world, literally, and asking people one specific question. So why don't we why don't we take a moment and shift to that moment where you got the inspiration to uh, to begin a project where you would simply ask people, what does peace mean to you? Yeah, sure. It's, um, I'm not sure if it was a particular moment as opposed to a, um, uh, a, a series of events that sort of pushed me in that direction. As, as a freelance photographer, I'm very often asked to tell somebody else's story. For a magazine or for a company, they have a story that they would like to tell, and it's my job to, to execute it and tell that story. Well, over time... As I developed my voice, as I developed my craft, I found that there were things that I wanted to say in the world as well. And I didn't always get to do that on my assignment work. So I found that I would take uh, small personal projects on, and I would photograph for a nonprofit, or I would do a short-term documentary project that may last a week or a month. Um, and I found that I was getting hungry for something larger than that something that could bring my voice out into the world, something that could help share some of the things that I had learned uh, through my travels and through my photography. And um, as luck would have it, I like to say that the economy handed me some free time. Um, the, uh, the, the economic downturn, the recession in 2008 and 2009 affected the world of freelance photography uh, rather dramatically and quickly, and I found myself with uh, time to pursue a large-scale personal project. Uh, about that same time, I was also uh, increasingly frustrated with the quality of our national dialogue, the way there were so many things that asked us to look at what could separate us. Um, and I wanted to see if I could use 
my photography and my storytelling instead to look at what connects us, to sort of look at that common humanity that we all share. Well, could you say a little bit about what you mean when you say that the quality of the national dialogue was lacking? I think I know what you mean, but I'd like you to maybe spell it out in a sentence or two. Yeah, sure. I think you don't have to do more than turn on the television or the radio or read through the newspaper uh, to see the way our political dialogue, uh, political rhetoric is polarized, uh, to see the way um, that much of our national dialogue is skewing out towards uh, the edges, either the far left or the far right of um, of political conversation. And I think, um, I think that both sides are not talking to one another. I think both sides are talking at or over one another. And it seems to me that, um, that most of our real solutions are going to be found somewhere in between. So, so I really wanted a piece of my mind to be a way to explore some of these issues and, uh, and some, of these, um, some of these events of the day uh, with a little more humanity and a little less rhetoric. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're having a conversation today with photographer and author John Noltner. He's driven over 40,000 miles across the United States these past several years, asking people the simple question, what does peace mean to you? And that has resulted in a traveling exhibit, a series of books, and an ongoing website conversation that is all gathered around the name A Peace of My Mind, peace spelled P-E-A-C-E, exploring the meaning of peace, one story, at a time. Well, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your process. So you had the inspiration you wanted to to improve public conversation and and the polarization that you just talked about in terms of our national discourse. And so you got your camera and you decided that you would do what at that point? How would you approach people to begin to uh, engage them around this idea of peace? Well, well it's interesting. I... I sometimes like to fully understand a project before I will launch into it. I like to understand the process and the goal and uh, the motivation behind it. Um, But sometimes I think if you wait until you understand the full picture of something, uh, you might never act. And so I really launched into this project with the vaguest notion of what I hoped to do Um, and, and the smallest idea of how that might happen. Um, I really approached it uh, by doing one interview first, and um, I would invite people to participate. For the first interview, I, I simply canvassed my friends and family, and I said, here, I'm thinking about having this conversation. Who do you think would be good uh, to talk with? And the first person um, that was recommended to me, the first person I met with, is a woman in Minneapolis named Barbara Nordstrom Loeb, and she is in my first book. And... Um, we basically sat down and we had an hour-long recorded conversation. Uh, we did a black-and-white portrait of Barbara in her home, and uh, then I went home and I edited that into a podcast. Um, in fact, I didn't start the podcast portion until I was about 12 stories in, but when I was about a dozen stories into the series, a friend of mine encouraged me to start a website, so I started posting podcasts online. And the, the podcasts, are are they edited versions of the interview, or is it simply you, you, you've turned on the tape recorder and then everything that the listener hears will be simply the raw, the raw audio of what that conversation was like? Or, or mm. how, how, do you, how did you sort of transform that or not transform that into a podcast? Yeah, they are edited a bit. It basically comes off as a monologue. 
so it's uh, my voice is removed, the questions are removed, and you just hear the person talking. And, um, you know, our conversations are usually about an hour long, and I usually edit those podcasts down into about 15 or 20 minutes, depending on what the person had to say. Well, and you mentioned that Barbara Nordstrom Loeb was your first interviewee. She describes herself as a psychotherapist, an educator, and a healer. And I, I noticed that at several points, in particularly in the descriptions in A Piece of My Mind, this word healing comes up again and again. And in the Jewish tradition, there's a, a concept called tikkun olam, to heal the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm just I'm wondering sort of, as you were thinking about this whole project, and you say you began with the vaguest of notions, you weren't really sure where this was going to lead, did you have hopes or notions about what this might accomplish in terms of either individual healing or world healing? I did, and really, really, from the outset, the goal was to get people to see the humanity in one another, to get people to see beyond the labels um, that were so quick to apply and uh, recognize the humanity or really recognize the, the divinity that is in each one of us. Uh, I have to be honest and say that at the beginning, my goals were more focused on world peace uh, in the political realm. And as I progress with this project, my goals and my, my interest leans more and more towards uh, spiritual or uh, interpersonal relationships, really. And what do you think is driving that shift? I I can imagine that, you know, we start out and we're idealistic and then we realize that we need to minimize our scope because our impact is lessened. But I didn't hear you saying that. I heard you saying that the focus was shifting maybe for a different reason. What have you been discovering as you've been making this shift from the desire for huge, sweeping world healing to more sort of relational and interpersonal healing? Well, I guess one of the things that I continue to experience as I've talk to people from all different backgrounds in life is that we we can't always control the situation that we're in. We can't always control uh, geopolitical uh, situations and uh, international policy. What we can control is how we respond to it. We can respond how or control how we respond to individuals. We can uh, control how we respond within our community. And so... Um, more and more I find myself interested and um, drawn to conversations that focus on uh, what we can choose to do in sometimes difficult situations. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with John Noltner about his project that has been going on for several years now that involves him asking people a simple question, what does peace mean to you? As they answer, he records their answers and he also photographs them in portrait form. That has become a project gathered under the the common name A Piece of My Mind, peace spelled P-E-A-C-E, exploring the meaning of peace one story at a time. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. 
we would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Noltner. He's an award-winning photographer and author, and he's driven over 40,000 miles over the past several years, crisscrossing the United States, asking people one simple question. What does peace mean to you? As they've answered, he's recorded their answers, and he has taken their photographs. And that has become an ongoing project, a traveling exhibit, a series of books, all gathered under the name A Piece of My Mind, peace spelled P-E-A-C-E. So I want to ask about what you have been discovering on your journeys. You've traveled over 40,000 miles. What have been some of the things that you've learned as you've been talking and, and interacting with people? Well, one of the things that has struck me from the beginning is how willing people are to share their stories and to open up and talk about this conversation. You know, the, the question, what does peace mean to you, on the surface is a very simple question, but it very quickly gets at the core of who we are as human beings and what we value as a society. It opens uh, the door to interesting conversations about race and gender issues, about uh, civic responsibility, conflict resolution, and social change. And um, what I find particularly interesting is that people uh, from across the country are happy to sit down and have this conversation. I think as, as our political discourse uh, gets more and more polarized. Um, I think that people are hungry uh, for a new kind of conversation. I think that people have have stored wisdom uh, that they would like to share, but I think we don't often have the chance to share that in our day-to-day -day interactions. So when somebody will sit down with you and say, you know, I want to hear what you have to say, uh, your perspective is really important to me, um, that's a powerful thing. I think it's moving for people to have that to have that audience. I was struck by the diversity of faces and voices that you captured. You you begin the book, if it's not the first one, it's near the first, with a homeless person. But then about two-thirds of the way through the book, you have a retired surgeon. And you have people from all different ethnicities, all different socioeconomic classes. And it's just such a breadth of human experience, uh, Christian and non-Christian, uh, just a, across the board. What was the process of trying to figure out who it was that you wanted to talk to, and how did you go about uh, getting this kind of diversity in, in your project? Mm, good question. It's, um, the goal was to be broadly diverse from the start. I think that uh, we do ourselves a disservice when we look to our celebrities and our political leaders um, as the only people who can affect change in the world. I think it's important that we recognize that each of us has a uh, has an important role to change or, or to play in uh, in creating the society, the culture, and the life that we want. And so the goal was to be broadly diverse. Um, I would find people uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, sometimes, like I said, it was reaching out to family and friends and asking for recommendations. As the project grew, every time I would interview somebody knew, I would ask them who, who they would suggest to broaden the exposure of the project. 
and then there were certain points where I just simply recognized demographic holes in the project. You know, when I got about 15 stories into my first book, I recognized that I didn't have any Muslim voices in the collection. And given the politics of the day, uh, I recognized that it would be important to include that voice in the conversation. And so I reached out intentionally to an organization called the Islamic Resource Group in Minnesota. Their mission statement is to help people understand what it means to be a Muslim in America today and uh, explained the project and asked if they could recommend someone to talk to. I like to say that I walk through the doors that have opened to me, but also I recognize that sometimes you have to knock on the doors to make them open. What strikes me about that answer is that when we think about the experience of peace and the notion of peace, the sort of, I- the, the sort of idea of peace, I think that we can tend to have a very individualized or a very global kind of sense of that. But it strikes me that peace to a person who doesn't have the security of a home or a stable income, that's going to be a different sort of quality to think about what that means than for someone who has always had three square meals, has always had shoes on their feet. And I just wonder, as you were sitting there asking this same question again and again, what struck you about the differences that you found in terms of the various kinds of ways that people approach that question and answer that question based upon their backgrounds? Hmm. Yeah, and this is what keeps me interested in the project because um, I thought when I started that eventually I would run out of subject material, right? How much can uh, can people say about peace uh, before just starting to, to um, repeat the same stories over and over uh, but what I find is that people's experiences are so unique and their, their perspectives and their ways of articulating them are so vastly different and, and fascinating that the, the project keeps drawing me in. Really, the focus falls on three themes, I think, and one is that people will talk about political peace, and another is that they will talk about spiritual peace, and a third is that they'll talk about inner peace. And I think there's crossover between those. But then within those categories, the way they explore it, the way they define it, uh, is, is so dramatically different. And I think that's where the interest and the richness of the project comes. You know, I think sometimes the word uh, peace comes with a certain amount of baggage. Sometimes I think the word peace is overused. And so people toss it about lightly and they don't necessarily think about what that means. But what's fundamentally interesting to me is how people apply that to their lives. You know, if they say they're interested in peace, what does that mean and how does that play itself out in their day-to-day living? When we're talking about these three different types of peace, the the political peace, the spiritual peace, and the inner peace, I'm now going to ask a philosophical question. Are we talking about the same kind of substance and quality that, that underlies each of these? Or is there a difference when we're talking about political peace, like that might be a more sort of justice-oriented peace versus a spiritual peace that is more kind of a relational sort of thing versus inner peace, which is kind of how we might address our own personal shame and history? Is it the same or is it, is it qualitatively different when we talk about these three different types of peace? I think they're related, David. They're not maybe exactly the same. And again, this depends on the person. But I think, I think that a person's spiritual peace is related directly to how they live in the world. And it's very easy to roll that into issues of uh, how you treat your neighbor, uh, which is easy to roll into issues of peace and justice. And so I think, 
I think all of them are related, and I think as people talk, very often they'll drift from one category to the next. My interest in this project is born out of my faith, quite simply um, Jesus' commandment to love one another. And what does that mean about how we treat one another? And, um, and so although I have a great interest in peace and justice and uh, policy issues, this all sort of stems from my own personal theology. Well, you, you mentioned just now your own personal faith. I wonder if, if, if you feel comfortable, would you be willing to share with our listeners how you think of your, your faith situatedness in the world? What, what is, do you self-define in a certain tradition, or do you think of yourself as a more just sort of a generally spiritual person? How do you think about faith applying to your life? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. I, uh, I was born and raised in the Lutheran tradition, and, uh, and that's where I maintain my church membership and, uh, and, and practice regularly. But I'll tell you that I, um, I very often uh, talk about a piece of my mind in church settings, in faith settings. And so if I'm talking about the project in a, in a Quaker setting and I attend a Quaker service, I think to myself, hmm, maybe I'm... Maybe I'm Quaker, and then if I go to a Methodist church, I think, oh no, actually, maybe I'm Methodist, and and <laughs> so I guess I guess that's my way of saying that I'm I'm not particularly dogmatic about any particular uh, denomination, uh, but um, and, and and honestly, I'm not much of a theologian uh, either. But I am constantly reminded of Jesus' uh, call to love one another, and I have. I have looked for the qualifiers, and I've looked for the loopholes and the exceptions in that statement, and I don't, I don't think they exist. It doesn't say uh, love the ones that look like you or love the ones that live like you or even, even love the ones that um, are going to vote like you in the next election cycle. It says love one another, period. And a, part of, a big part of a piece of my mind is my response to that call, to look for the humanity in all of our neighbors. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with award-winning photographer and author John Noltner. He's driven over 40,000 miles these last several years asking people the simple question, what does peace mean to you? That has become a project that has spawned a book, a traveling exhibit, and several other media pieces, including a podcast, all under the general name A Peace of My Mind, peace spelled P-E-A-C-E, exploring the meaning of peace one story at a time. Well, a moment ago, you said that you identify within the Lutheran tradition, but then when you're talking to Quakers, you say, well, maybe I could be Quaker. And when you're talking to other faith traditions, you find a lot of affinity and resonance within those differing faith traditions. And what struck me as you were saying that was that reminds me a lot of conversations that I've had with people that dig deeply into the mystical tradition. Uh, interviews I've had with people like Carl McCollman and Phyllis Tickle, they, they talk about this common thread of mysticism that, that lies behind different spiritual traditions and the different kind of defined, the defined fiefdoms of spirituality and faith. As you've been exploring this notion of peace, have you found yourself drawn at all to a mystical tradition or deeper into a, a mysticism within the Lutheran tradition or maybe exploring uh, a Buddhist mysticism? Uh, how has mysticism tied in with this notion of, of peace? I'm, I'm not sure that I would be able to define it as, as mysticism, but my, but my interest in listening to um, my heart, my soul, uh, my, my interest in 
encouraging and making time for the spiritual dimensions of my faith have grown uh, quite a bit. This, this entire project has been an exercise in faith. As we've developed it, I've really tried to listen. I guess some people would call it the Holy Spirit. Some people would call it my, my heart or my conscience. But I've, I've tried to listen to that voice inside that helps me know where this should go next. And as a result, I think I've, I've been willing to take more risks with it, knowing that I'm following a path that I should be on. I also have learned practices that allow me to listen more closely to that voice. It does. And you mentioned a moment ago that it has allowed you to take more risks. And I'm curious, I can see the upside to doing a project like this. But I can also see in our fraught political climate, and you've, you've talked about this already, that there might be a downside. Has there been pushback? Has, has, has there been a, a point or points where people have, have challenged your project, the very notion of your project or some aspect of your project? Oh, absolutely. There are people from certain conservative, traditional faith backgrounds that that are uncomfortable with the notion of interfaith dialogue. There are certain people who are uncomfortable with the notion of including uh, gay, lesbian, or transgender people in the project. Uh, Politically, there are people who are uncomfortable that I would interview an undocumented immigrant and uh, hold them up as uh, as a hero, as I've heard people say. You know, my goal for the project is not so much to create heroes or to create villains in the world. My goal is to hear people's human stories, see what we can learn from their experience, and simply acknowledge that they exist in our world. So if if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds as if the very process of asking people about peace has opened up possibilities along the way for you to for want of a better phrase, practice what you're what you're preaching or practice what you're seeking. These these people who have challenged you, you've had to find a way to listen to them without necessarily having it devolve into the kind of polarized conversation that you're trying to um, that you're trying to undo. Am I hearing that correctly? Oh, absolutely. And I can give you a very clear example. Early on in this project, um, uh, like I mentioned, the the economy had handed me a bit of free time. Uh, we were finding ourselves in an economic bind and. Uh, we made the decision, uh, by we, I mean my wife and I, made the decision that we were going to sell our large pickup truck, which used a lot of gas. If you remember, in 2008 and 2009, gas prices were going through the roof. Um, and we decided to sell that and buy a small used car that had 140,000 miles on it so that we could uh, free up some economic pressure so I could keep working on this project. Well, about that time, I had the chance to interview an oil company executive. And I promise you, as, as they were posting record, record profits every quarter, I went into that interview with a, a certain notion of what an oil company executive would be. And it, um, it wasn't positive. Uh, so what I found is that when I was able to sit down with this man and uh, have an hour-long conversation, that... Uh, slowly I began to recognize a humanity that I was unable or unwilling to acknowledge before. And, uh, you know, by the end of it, I had a different perspective of what an oil company executive might be. And I think uh, very often in this project, I wind up meeting with people who I think are going to come at this conversation from 
ways that are fundamentally different than I might. Um, and by the end of it, we've found some common ground. So it's not to say that there is not difference that exists out there, but I think that when we only focus on that difference, uh, that when we only direct our attention at what separates us, that eventually that becomes counterproductive. And we need to also, at the same time, spend some energy uh, looking for what connects us, looking at what we share in common. And I just, I just interviewed somebody um, who talked about that in their story, and they said that um, when they're in a conversation with someone that they know that they struggle with, that uh, when things begin to get tense, um, they backpedal a little bit and they retreat to those things that they know they share in common and they return to that foundation uh, so that they can continue to build the relationship and uh, explore those differences in a little calmer fashion. Well, you mentioned the uh, the interview that you did with the oil company executive, and I, I was just recalling that interview, and, and there was something that he said in the course of that. He, he said, if developing people's needs aren't met, tensions will increase on a global scale. So peace is in some ways tied with comfort, and it's tied in with the meeting of material needs. So there's there's not just a it's not just a peace of mind, but it's also a peace of body. Or I, I, I may not be saying that in the best way, but but there's there's a there's a body piece as well as a mental piece that we're talking about here. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think that there are certain fundamental needs that need to be met for people. You know, they need a secure home. They need uh, you know nutritious food. They need economic resources. I think if we ignore all of those things, you know, we certainly cannot get to a place of a more peaceful world. I think, I think all of these issues are related. And so if we start talking about policy, if we start talking about immigration policy, and, we are, and if we happen to be concerned about uh, Syrian refugees uh, coming into Northern Europe, Western Europe, uh, coming into the United States, I think we need to you know, that is not an isolated incident. I think that in that process, we also have to acknowledge that uh, at a certain point in our history, when things were happening in Syria, when we could have taken action and we did not, um, you know, that led to that led to the instability that, that has created this mass migration. And so I think when we talk about making ourselves secure uh, politically, uh, for me, uh, my security comes... Uh, when others are secure as well. You know, I think that that my needs are met when I am assured that other people's needs are met as well. So for me, the notion of peace is not simply um, personal. It needs to be communal in how we relate to one another, in, in the sense that I'm not done until everybody's done. If you're just joining us, we're... Sp- if you're just joining us, we're speaking to award-winning photographer and author John Noltner. Uh, in the past several years, he's driven over 40,000 miles across the United States asking people the simple question, what does peace mean to you? And that has become a traveling exhibit and a series of books gathered under the name A Peace of My Mind, Peace spelled P-E-A-C-E. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support things not seen. We can make that happen. 
Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with award-winning photographer and author John Noltner. He's been working for the last several years on a project called A Piece of My Mind, peace spelled P-E-A-C-E, exploring the meaning of peace one story at a time. He's driven over 40,000 miles across the United States asking people the simple question, what does peace mean to you? The results of these efforts have included a traveling exhibit, a series of books, and a website that features podcasts where the people speak answering that question. So when a person hears about the exhibit that you have, and I, you, you've, you were in Washington, D.C. for the Sojourner Summit for Change, and then you went to the Peace of Pie weekend in, late, uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, you're traveling uh, later to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, and, I, and I know that you've been in Memphis for the Gandhi King event in the past. Um, when someone hears that this is coming to town and they, they go to see the exhibit, what do they see? So I've got a couple copies of the exhibit, but the content is the same on each. And what they'll find is a is a large black and white portrait of the subject, a a small hundred word biography of who that person is, which I've written, um, and then a 250 to 300 word excerpt from their interview. So they'll find um, a very condensed, very small edited version of our conversation, and there are 52 stories in the exhibit, and um, the the one copy of the exhibit is a gallery exhibit, and it hangs on the walls. It didn't take me long to figure out that not everybody has 150 feet of wall space to display art, and so the newer copy of the exhibit is, is freestanding as portable display banners, so we can install it in atriums and libraries and, uh, and student unions and so forth. Now, that has allowed you uh, something that a lot of times artists don't get, and that is the chance to watch people interact with your creations in real time. What has that been like for you as an artist? It's, it's one of the greatest joys, and it's actually hard for me to leave uh, an exhibit and wonder uh, to myself how, how people are engaging. But it's, it's a treat for me to see people, these photographs, especially in the, uh, in the portable display banners, uh, those are in very public spaces. Right, it's a certain kind of person that will go to a gallery. That's a certain demographic. Uh, but these stories are meant to be seen, and they're they're meant to be very public. And so these portable display banners will install in public places. The portraits are large; they're about 30 inches by 30 inches, and so they they really command and fill up a space. And I will see very often people walking by at 100 miles an hour, um, aiming for their next destination. Uh, do a double take as they're walking by the exhibit and get pulled in. One of these portraits will will sort of draw them in, and I'll see them stop, uh, look at the photograph, read the story, uh, 
and then move on to the next one and, and wind up going from story to story to story. And um, while I apologize for having disrupted their, uh, <laughs> their mission and their schedule that they were on that day, it's, um, it, it speaks to sort of the compelling nature of these stories, that, that they're very human, they're very interesting, and they draw people in quickly. Well, the, many years ago there was a philosopher, a Jewish philosopher by the name of Emmanuel Levinas, and he, he was writing in the wake of the Holocaust, and one of the things that he wrote a lot about in his philosophy was the power of the face and the way in which being confronted with someone else's face almost obligates you to to engage with them and their humanity. And I've noticed that the the framing of these portraits, for the most part, are with a few exceptions in the ones that I've seen, but most of them are very tight shots. I mean, sometimes you'll get a, a chance to see more of the context in which the person is. Like I think about the, the woman at the potter's wheel or the, the, the couple that actually were Holocaust survivors that were sitting on a park bench. But a lot of them are very close up. And I'm, I'm wondering in terms of composing these photographs, what's the choice that you're making there? Is this intentional to always give them such such sort of real estate in terms of the the uh, the uh, the portrait itself as opposed to the context what what do you do in terms of thinking about the composition of these well in some senses it is intentional in others it's uh it's practical when when i'm in an environment uh you'll you'll notice there's a um, rabbi marsha zimmerman is in a uh, a stunning temple and when we have that environment available to us, sometimes we will use that environment. But I, but I am typically very drawn to faces, very drawn to uh, people's eyes. And, um, and, and when I photograph, uh, I tend to photograph um, wide shots and I tend to photograph close shots at every session. But when I go through the editing process, I'm typically uh, more drawn to the closer photos. The ones that are that are in uh, tight enough that we can sort of examine every detail of, of who those people are visually, and when you encounter the exhibit, uh, these portraits then are reproduced, you know, for the most part a little bit larger than life, and they're also tend to be reproduced so that you are more or less right at eye level with these people. So as you go through the exhibit, you are looking uh, into these people's eyes. Now these are not professional models, and I can imagine that when you when you point a camera in their face, a lot of them are probably self-conscious or uncomfortable. What what process do you go through to reassure them and to make them feel more at ease with what you're doing? Well, like you said at the uh, before we went on the air, David, your job is to make me comfortable on the radio. Uh, my job as a photographer is to make people comfortable in front of the lens, and for me, uh, it's very important that I do the interview before I do the photograph. I think if I were to walk into somebody's home and sit down and say, okay, let's make a portrait, that's, that's a bit of a jarring experience. But when we sit down and we have an hour-long conversation, a couple of things happen. One is that people become comfortable with my presence, right? They, uh, we have a rapport. We have uh, some relationship going on, and that helps get people comfortable. Um, the second thing that happens is that I gain some insight as to who these people are. Um, I don't always have a lot of background information about a person before I go into the interview. So through the process of this interview, um, I'm able to learn more about them so I understand um, what kind of portrait would be, um, would be appropriate. And then from a, a strictly um, practical standpoint, that gives me some time to sort of scan the room and look around and see where the light's beautiful and see where, 
where things might compose nicely, and it gives me a little time to get ready for that. Then, um, when I actually do the photograph, um, I tend to photograph a lot. Um, I take a lot of pictures um, because people aren't always comfortable with the idea of being photographed, and it takes them some time to relax. Very often what I find is that I'll try to direct somebody into a comfortable position, and then I'll take a short break and I'll say, hang on a second while I go change my card or put in a fresh battery. And it's in that moment when I turn my back that they sort of settle into a really comfortable position. And when I turn around, all I have to say is, ooh, that, keep doing that. You know, when people, when people think they're not being photographed, they'll settle into that comfortable moment. You, you said something earlier in the conversation. You talked about recognizing the divinity in each one of us. And I'm curious, do you think the camera captures that? Do you think that, that, that the camera can in some way for a moment freeze that, that recognition of divinity? Or is this something intangible that goes beyond the photograph? I'm not sure that it can capture the divinity. But what it allows us to do is to um, study and examine the photograph and bring sort of recognize the divinity on our own, uh, which is to say that I'm not sure that it, it happens from what I do. I think recognizing that divinity happens from what the viewer does. Um, when we encounter people, um, strangers on the street, it's, it's not appropriate to come up close to them and study their features uh, <laughs> in, a, in a very direct and forthright way. When we have a photograph sitting in front of us, we have that opportunity. So if there's someone that differs from us in some way, uh, from their culture, tradition, ethnicity, whatever that might be. Um, you know, it gives us a comfortable chance to sort of explore that photograph and, and try to find that divinity. But I think it's, it, it is something, um, it's, it's beholden upon the viewer. Um, I don't think there's anything magical that I do in the photography process that captures that, other than um, establish a... Um, establish an honest relationship with that person. Now, some cultures are very suspicious of photography. Uh, you'll sometimes hear about uh, cargo cultures that were like, the photograph will steal your soul. And right. you've just described the, the benign aspects of photography. Are there, are there downsides to capturing a person in this way? Is there something perhaps dangerous or suspicious in, in engaging in this activity? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I've never really thought about it that way. I think... Um, I have always worked as a photographer um, very openly with people, and I ask them for their permission. Um, you know, they've signed a release that says it's okay we photographed them. Um, I think when you have that sort of honest peer relationship going on, um, you know, it's a very forthright process. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's very different than, than what a paparazzi photographer might do. Um, it's very different than... than other kinds of fashion photography, um, but I think um, I think what's important to me uh, and maintains the integrity of the project is um, you know collaboration with others. You know this is a team effort. I really think that I'm not much more than a curator of these people's stories. You know that they have they've entrusted me with their stories, and it's important to me to tell them with integrity. Uh, with authenticity and, and really reflect what these people intended to say uh, with their photo and, and, their, and their words. 
You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking with John Noltner. He's an award-winning photographer and author, and he's traveled over 40,000 miles across the United States in an ongoing project called A Piece of My Mind, piece spelled P-E-A-C-E. So you have the, the, the first book, A Piece of My Mind, which is a, a series of portraits of, of the people that you've spoken to and excerpts from their interviews, and the interviews in their longer form are available through your website as podcasts. Mm-hmm. And then you've turned this also into a traveling exhibit where there's, there's also an excerpt and a larger version of the portrait. What comes next? What are you working on now? Sure. Well, the, the first book, uh, the one that you, you were recalling some stories out of, uh, those 50 stories were produced here in Minnesota, where I live. I live uh, just south of Minneapolis. And um, it's got a much larger worldview uh, than that because of who the people are. In fact, it's fun for me to bring this collection to the East Coast, to bring it to the West Coast, and have people look at the stories and think, oh, they're so diverse. And then when they hear they're from Minnesota, uh, they're taken aback a bit because they don't expect uh, the center of our country to have that kind of diversity, but in fact, it's, um, it's all around us. Um, the book I'm working on now, uh, you referred to this 40,000-mile journey. For the last three years, I've been traveling across the country uh, asking people this same question. And so that book will come out September 21st, which is the International Day of Peace, and it will be a piece of my mind, American stories. And so it's, it's, it's drawn from a cross-section of, of our country, Uh, And that will be produced as an exhibit as well, uh, which should come out in January of 2017. Now, as you've been engaged in this project, I I imagine that there has been a lot that has buoyed you and has given you uh, reason to rejoice. But before we talk about that, I'd like to ask you, what have you seen that has created frustrations in you? What have you seen that has that has made you realize that the problems maybe go deeper than than even maybe you imagined when you began this project years ago? One of the most frustrating things that I encounter as people as people talk about peace is when they pin responsibility for peace on a different party. Uh, I think it becomes very easy to say I could be peaceful if. You know, if this person acted that way, or if I had more resources, or if some situation was different, I think what I have become convinced of more and more as I listen to these different stories is that really, regardless of our situation, regardless of who else is involved, that we as individuals have the ability to turn a situation toward peace. Every day we're faced with choices uh, that we can make that will lead Toward peace, if not necessarily arrive at peace, and and I become a little bit disheartened when people focus instead on reasons why there could not be peace. Again, I think I think it's clear that we have issues and challenges and uh, problems in our world, but what I love about these stories and a piece of my mind is that they all focus on people who have made choices to respond in a positive way and to try to affect some positive change out of even the most difficult situations. 
and and that seems to begin to touch on what I wanted to ask next. And and what is it? Because it must take a lot of of stamina and and recharging of batteries to maintain a project like this, an ongoing sort of artistic endeavor that takes you not only through a creative journey, but also literally, and in, I would imagine in some cases, a grueling physical journey. What what is it that keeps you keeps your batteries charged? What is it that keeps you hopeful? What is it that that keeps you going on this project? Well, the the easy answer to that is the next story. I am I am eternally curious, um, eternally optimistic, and I I, I just find it uh, invigorating and and exciting to meet new people and hear their stories. And when people when people open up and share very authentic, very personal stories. Um, you know that's that's precious. That's rich, and I feel honored that these people have let me into their lives. And then when we when we bring these exhibits around and share these stories at colleges and at at uh, you know places of worship, uh, when I see the gentle way that these stories encourage conversation and the way it encourages people, uh, you know, to engage uh, with others around them, it's. Um, you know, I feel I feel a little obligated to keep it going. Uh, it's the combination of art and storytelling is um, is is sort of a, a rich way uh, to tap into some really difficult issues around us. And and I see it every time the exhibit goes out. I see it opening up conversations, opening up new possibilities uh, between people. And and I guess that's what encourages me to keep on going. Well, John Noltner, I have really enjoyed our conversation, and I've been inspired by your work, and it sounds as if you're going to keep doing this for many years to come, and I look forward to, to benefiting from 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 your continuing to uh, ask people these questions and, and tell these stories. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, I'm grateful, uh, grateful for your time. Thank you, David. We've been speaking today with John Noltner, the award-winning photographer and author. He's traveled over 40,000 miles across the United States asking people one question. What does peace mean to you? The result of that question has led to an ongoing art project called A Peace of My Mind, peace spelled P-E-A-C-E, and it has led to a series of books, uh, several traveling exhibits, a website, and a series of podcasts. And he is not done yet. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badnock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.